Welcome to Winning Healthcare Food Fights Without the Mess. I'm Hunter Schultz, and on this week's show, we'll be exploring medical privacy and how it impacts you and your family. Our next election will likely determine whether you keep it or lose it. My guest this week is president and co-founder of the Citizens Council for Health Freedom. Modern Healthcare named her number 75 on their 2009 100 Most Powerful People in Healthcare list. She is the author of the award-winning book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. You can find out more about it on our resource page at the website or at bigbrotherintheexamroom.com. Her Health Freedom Minute is heard weekdays by more than 5 million listeners on more than 800 radio stations in 47 states. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in nursing, specialized in emergency room nursing, and is a certified public health nurse. Welcome to the show, Twyla Brays. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, so happy and honored to have you joining us, and thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to share some thoughts about something we both share deep concern over. I know every time I go for a deep dive on American medical privacy, I wear my brown pants, and I'm wearing them right now. Uh, let's, let's dive right in, because over 20 years ago, you co-founded the Citizens Council for Health Freedom, which is on the web at cchfreedom.org. So did you wake up a morning and decide, this is what I'm going to do? What's the genesis of CCHF? It began with what I read about the Clinton Health Security Act, which was that the plan of President and Mrs. Clinton was to give us all a national health care system and a national health care system run by health plans or managed care organizations. And I knew that once they took over the healthcare system, if they were allowed to do so, um, we would not only lose our health freedom, but we would lose freedom as a country. So you've done some great work up there in terms of milestones in Minnesota and medical privacy. Would I be correct in perceiving that if you live in Minnesota, you probably have the best medical privacy possible under current law of any state? Yes, but it is not originally the doing of this organization. We do have the strongest law in the nation. It was enacted about 30 years ago before our organization ever began. However, um, it is one of the first issues that our organization worked on when we began and over the last four to five years we have had to fight against big business and big data and uh, government agencies and researchers to keep our law in place mm. because our law unlike other states our law says that you have to, except in three limited exceptions, you have to get the patient's consent before you can share the data. And at a federal level and in every other state, those states and at the federal level, they're under something called the HIPAA privacy rule, which protects no one's privacy. The name is um, a euphemism. 
it should be called the data disclosure rule because it allows all these entities and all these people to have access to your data without your consent if those who hold your data, like health plans or clinics or hospitals or laboratories or x-ray facilities or whomever, if they hold your data, they can share your data without your consent. And that, that has recently become very clear when, with the news that Ascension Health System has handed over the medical records of 50 million people to Google. It has all their names, all their diagnoses, and Google is planning to data mine uh, that information. And that's all perfectly legal under HIPAA through um, business associate agreements and uh, sharing for, quote, healthcare operations, which is a huge definition of um, at least 65 business, non-clinical activities that have nothing to do with taking care of the patient. But in Minnesota, we have this strong privacy law that says you can't do any of that unless you get the patient's consent. Uh. Big data is coming, isn't it? Or it's trying to. Well, it's already here. It's here. To, to a great extent. I read a quote once from a Pittsburgh uh, professor on this subject, and he said, big data means no more data, no more healthcare privacy, no more health privacy. It's gone with big data. If it's allowed to run its course, that's it. There's no more medical privacy. But it's not because of big data. It's because big data happened as a result of HIPAA. HIPAA is the problem. Big data could sit out there and do, you know, and try whatever they want to, but they'd have to get consent if it wasn't because of the federal um, privacy, so-called uh, privacy rule called HIPAA, which means you don't have to get consent. And so big data has become a big thing because there's no limits on access to, to all of this private information on patients because of HIPAA. I'd like to commend you on the book. Great achievement. And I'm, I'm looking at it. I have it right here. And at some point, you decided to write Big Brother in the exam room. Obviously, just from looking at it, that was a huge job. So what was the backstory behind the decision to fire up the old word processor and do it? <laughs> yes, it's uh, more than 400 pages long. It's got more than 1,500 endnotes because it had to be bulletproof. Uh, and the reason that I wrote it is because, you know, we've been fighting the battle since 1996. Um, and the battle is being fought against Republicans and Democrats. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, a lot of times it's the Democrats who... Um, are okay with the government having access to the data, but not the health plans, not big data, not big business. And it's the Republicans in office. I'm not talking about people on the street, but Republicans in office who, you know, there's a lot of lobbyists from big data and big health and big government. And, um, and they're okay with the corporations having access to the data. And uh, I have had Republicans, even libertarians, tell me, that we're on the wrong side of the data issue because they need to get data on patients and patient care in order to have a marketplace. <laughs> and that is just folly. Um, imagine that kind of reasoning with your bank records. Um, it, it would never fly. 
Um, and so, and so they have, um, both sides have allowed the intrusion into the exam room for their own purposes, you know, perhaps because of, you know, some of their donors, perhaps because of their own investments, perhaps just because they love the idea of a market created by um, data and patients and doctors and but it's not really a market that's a, you know that's an interesting thing that's one of the things that i say in the book is um you know they're gathering this data according to things that the data uh, industry or the government say is good medicine but it's bad medicine and all the reporting has has taken the doctors away from the patient and then what they're getting is not quality healthcare measurements they're getting compliance measurements with how the outsiders want medicine to be practiced and that's not good for any patient and so it's like this entire industry has been developed through data taken from the patient and the doctor in the exam room and um and lots of money on all on all sorts of angles is being accumulated using the patient's data using the data to control the doctors using the data to make analyses and um and put out that data and get money off of that data and and using the data for research that some people won't even want to be part of you know so there's so much money and what i wanted to do was i wanted to tell the story from the very beginning and i wanted to say how we got to where we are now that both Republicans and Democrats are letting intruders into the exam room, are controlling the doctor's treatment decisions, are putting the patients in danger. The electronic health record has proven to be a danger. There are new medical errors that come out of it. Doctors can't think critically when they're trying to just check the right boxes in order to be paid. You know, they're, they're, so I talk about the dangers and, and I talk about how we got to this point, which is because none of us pay, well, most of us, I should say, don't pay our own medical bills. And because we have some third party paying, and that's either the government or that's a health plan or that's an employer. And those people who are paying the bills have our money and they can consider our money as their money and they don't want to lose any more of it than they have to. And so they need to control the doctors. And so I have a timeline for how this country arrived at the control of third party payers in the exam room. And that's why we have all this data collection, all this data reporting, all of this happening without the patient's control over it. And patients are the ones who will suffer, but doctors are also suffering because one, they become data clerks for the government and for the health plans. Uh, two, they feel the ethical uh, quandary in this because they know they're supposed to be taking care of the patients, but they're taking care of the paperwork. Um, and then in addition, I mean, there's more doctors committing suicide now. It's more than one a day. And, um, and studies prove that the burden and the burnout of physicians is happening. The primary reason is the electronic health record. But doctors are also burdened by the fact that they're following the dictates of others in that exam room. They know what's best for the patient, but they're not allowed to do it if they want to get paid. And so lots of doctors are leaving. And one of the statistics that I have um, in the book is from a 2016 survey of more than 17,200 doctors. This is a very big survey of physicians. And 48% of them, so essentially half the physicians in the country, 
are considering leaving the practice of medicine altogether, retiring early, um, going into non-clinical um, practice like research, um, or going into tiny concierge practices where they only see like three to 600 patients. Um, so that means at a time when 10,000 um, baby boomers are entering Medicare every day, half of the physicians are planning or thinking about heading for the exits. And this is primarily because of the outside control of the exam room of their treatment decisions that is empowered by the electronic health record that Congress has mandated that every doctor and every hospital put in every exam room and every uh, hospital room. And so I needed to tell the story and let people know what danger they're in. They needed to hear that that electronic health record is not what they think that electronic health record is. Uh, it's, a, it's a tool of surveillance, it's a tool of control, and it is a safety hazard um, while uh, for patients. Music to any author's ears, best-selling Twyla Bray's joining me today. So I grew up with the Cold War as a suppressive influence literally over the entire planet. One button pushed and that's it. So we're now doing the table place settings for an electronic Cold War. And I think our, our personal data is going to be used against us. It's going to happen. And while I was doing research for this uh, not only for this show, but in my own book, I have a section on healthcare. So, I mean, on privacy in it. So that was enough to make me go, well, wait a minute. But I found in his Cleveland Clinic talk, Ideas for Tomorrow, then NSA Director Admiral Michael Rogers provided a stark contrast with the legal hoops the U.S. government has to jump through in order to access a U.S. citizen's email or listen to a phone call. And you compare that to what we have in healthcare. And I I'll have the link in the description of the show. And if you fast forward to the 22 minute, 39 second mark about medical privacy and that threat, and I, I've got it written down here and I wanna quote it. He said, we live in a world now where suddenly this information has value for a lot of different purposes, not all of which are to ensure our health. And that's not good. Call me anything you want, but Admiral Rogers is way, way smarter than yours truly. It's clear to me that we need to clamp down on access to personal health information, not opening more doors and windows to it. So Twyla, please change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not going to change your mind because the fact of the matter is that the data will be used against people, particularly in uh, it was Ronald was it Ronald Reagan or was it who said that in the twilight of your years or the you know the at, at birth when when you're not perfect or when you have a disability um, or you know or even looking at people's genetics so person A wants to marry person B and now they've got the whole genetic sequence and they look and they go well these two people get together they're they've got a 25% chance or 75% chance of having this kind of a baby. And this kind of a baby is going to cost us a whole lot of money. And so we need to either, um, you know, require or recommend or whatever preconception testing or, um, you know, genetic um, 
um, why, why I can't think, I think of the name of the word. It's a, you know, when you change the editing, genetic editing. CRISPR. Yeah, CRISPR, right? And, um, and then if you're older at a certain age, um, because everybody will have, they'll know what the age is, they'll know what the diagnoses are, they'll know all of that. There'll be things that aren't even available to you because they'll have all this information. Now, a lot of your listeners are probably, they're probably limited when they're, when I'm talking about all this information, they're probably limiting their thinking to, you know, diagnoses that they have um, or um, medications that they've taken. But listeners, your listeners need to, to expand greatly um, on that because what's happening today is the whole movement towards social determinants of health information. Um, and that means things like um, your ability to access food, your income, what are your housing conditions like? What, what kind of a family situation are you in? You know, that this is a collection of basically all the information on your life. What's, what, what do you do it on social media? And then, you know, um, people are making um, errors, I think, when they go into the patient portal of their clinic and they start adding more information about their life to the patient portal. This is considered patient-generated information. And it helps to, um, you know, fill in the details of your profile. It, and, you know, you might even share your sister's name or your parent's name or, you know, what you did. Um, you know, you ate a certain food when you're out at, you know, wherever, right? People mm -hmm. are starting to put in all this information. Well, it doesn't just sit there in the patient portal of your doctor's office because the whole plan, starting with the mandated uh, government electronic health record, because it has to be government certified, it's got to be government designed, it's got to do what government says. That's what's in everybody's exam rooms today. So the whole movement there was to connect all of these electronic health records together online through the internet into something called the eHealth Exchange which is a nationwide national um, medical record system of computerized, digitized data accessible to everyone uh, who under HIPAA can have access to it. And that, according to the federal government, is 2.2 million entities. That's entities, that's not people, that's entities. So mm -hmm. hospitals, different kinds of facilities, um, 1.5 million of that are business associates of hospitals and clinics and health plans and laboratories and data clearing houses. And so all of them can have permitted access to all of your data without your consent if your hospital, health plan, uh, doctor, laboratory, if they, if they decide to to use any of these business associates for anything that they want to do, whether it's research or um, you know, analytics or uh, predictive analytics to see how expensive a, of a person you're going to be. And so Epic is like the biggest electronic health record in the nation. And I quote in my book, the founder of Epic, Judith Faulkner. And I'm not looking at that quote at this moment, so I can't, it's not, it's just going to be paraphrased. But it's something like, it goes something like this. She's telling her, it's a 
at her user group conference, which means all the people around the nation who use the Epic system are invited to come to a conference. And, um, and she's speaking <laughs> at this conference. And she said something in this order to these seven, six, seven, eight thousand people. Um, we need to know uh, what you eat, how, how you sleep, um, how many hours you sleep, and what your social conditions are because they all affect your health. So this means your behavior, this means your, what, what you do on social media, you know, now I'm talking, your behavior, social media, anything that has to do with who you are. And so the electronic health record, she would like the electronic health record to be called not an EHR, electronic health record, but a CHR, comprehensive health record. And I call it a complete dossier of your life. And so there you are, a vulnerable person in the exam room. And um, you are creating against yourself at a time where you have no choice, if you want care, you have no choice but to give up all this data so they can build this profile, this dossier on who you are. Um, you know, it's just, it's, uh, I do tell people don't fill out questionnaires, don't answer lots of questions. Um, you know, don't share any information more than you need, but I, but I encourage people to find clinics that aren't, you know, that aren't, aren't part of the system. Like we have the, the wedge of health freedom and they could go to jointhewedge.com and find a doctor who does only cash check or charge and promises to keep their data between the four walls of their clinic. Yeah. Cause you need to try and protect yourself. Sure. You know, we're circling it at the 70,000 foot level. Uh, in some respects. And I'd love to drop down to the ground level where the listeners are getting medical care. And you've said some things that kind of lean in that direction. One of the things that I that I concerns me is the fact that we now have genome in the primary care realm. It's $250 to get one done. That data is going into the electronic health record, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. So what this means for them, I think to do that effectively, they have to know the lay of the land and you're already laying some of that out. Your privacy is GPS and waves, congratulations. <laughs> so Big Brother, in Big Brother you mentioned there are three different data collection systems and there's the electronic health record, the electronic medical record and the personal health record. But in the primary care setting, and I'd love for you to just kind of refine the, the thinking here, if you're a primary care physician, you're using an electronic health record. So is that considered a PHR co combined or are they still separate? Okay, well, let me just be clear. The electronic medical record, the word electronic medical record and electronic health record are often used interchangeably. Hmm. Although the electronic medical record would be simply putting, uh, like taking copies of your paper medical record and just having all the PDFs, you know, up there. So it, it wouldn't be interactive. It wouldn't have fields to complete, you know, no click and, you know, click and paste. None of that would be in there. It would just be, you know, copies of your paper medical records. But in point of fact, around the country, you'll hear EHR, electronic health record, or EMR, electronic medical record, used interchangeably. Mm. And what they're usually talking about is the electronic health record. Okay. Now, the electronic health record has much more in there than you think. And so you're talking about the PHR, the personal uh, health record. And um, 
and, and here's the interesting thing about this, is the electronic health record has not just what you would find in your paper medical record. It has your, uh, so, so the patient's financial information in there. It can have um, information that um, the administrators put in there. Um, there's a lot of information in there that um, you you may not even understand if you were to open it up because it's sure right. But the PHR, the personal health record, is usually what you see when you go into the patient portal because they aren't going to show you your entire electronic health record. Huh. And I have I have a uh, the little incident happened between then Vice President Joe Biden and Judy Faulkner, the head of Epic. And so I took quotes from the news story about this because Joe Biden wanted his entire electronic health record. And Judith Faulkner wanted to know why and told him he wouldn't even be able to understand it. And there were thousands and thousands of pages and he wouldn't understand it. And, and <laughs> he got just really mad because he wanted the entire thing. And so that little incident is recorded in there. Um, to just show you how vast the electronic health record is. Wow. And so much else in there. And so the PHR is just the little part that you're allowed to see. And most people think, oh, that's what my electronic health record is. This is what I can see here. No, no, the electronic health record is much more vast with much more information, much of which they probably wouldn't want you to see. Joe, Joe needs, a, I think Joe needs a pair of brown pants. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I'm wearing mine. So we're here with Twyla Braze, president of the Citizens Council for Health Freedom. Primary care provides most of our health care in our entire lifetime. And so these doctors are col collecting information. They're, they're putting into the EHR. And some of that is really sensitive and private information. And they need that information in order to do the right job. I mean, garbage in, garbage out. And they'll tell you that. We need to, we need to know the whole story. And that's nothing new. That's 2,400 years of Hippocrates. So docs are dealing with some brutal aspects uh, sometimes in patients' lives. I mean, you have sexual assaults, you have rapes, and there are issues of abortion, adoption, addiction, mental illness, and only the, only the physician uh, is going to know that for a variety of reasons. In many cases, fear and shame are, are the two of the biggest drivers for that. So let's follow this trail. The doctor enters this horrific rape and, and the healthcare aftermath into the EHR. Twyla, can it and how can it spread into our current system? Does that go into EPIC? I mean, how does that work? So there are different um, EHR systems and they're called EHR vendors. And so one of the biggest one is EPIC and there's Cerner, there's next gen, there's a bunch of different ones. And according to how much money you have, you probably pick different ones like Mayo Clinic that has Epic everywhere that Mayo Clinic is, Epic is. It costs them $1.5 billion to put it in uh, under this government mandate. And so, um, and so that's what you see next to your bedside. It's the software, it's the, you know, the computer screen maybe, but it's for sure the software. And what happens, let's just say it's an epic record. We'll just use epic. If it's an epic record and the doctor puts it in sitting there, you know, in front of the computer screen, puts this information in, that information goes and travels to 
over the airwaves to Verona, Wisconsin, which is where the servers are for Epic. And so it it does not stay within those four walls. It does not stay within that computer screen. It travels to the servers or what's what's called the Epic Cloud. And a cloud is just where you've got these big servers, data collection servers that are sitting somewhere. It's like when 9-11 happened, right? Mm -hmm. One of those companies got to start up their business the very next day because all of their data went into a whole server system that was far from New York City, right? As a protection for their business. Sure. Well, that's what happens with Epic. It goes, it goes far away uh, into Epic's server system. And then now it's available. It's part of Epic, right? It's in their server system. And sometimes when, and I'm not saying that Epic does this, but sometimes when a doctor or a clinic or a hospital, they want to, um, they want to leave Epic behind and now they want to take on Cerner, for instance. It can be hard for them to get all their own data out of the former system because the former system doesn't want to let it go. The former system, like Epic in this case, would like to hold on to all those, all that data on all those patients, right? So once it leaves the structure of the clinic, you know, some people say possession is 90%. Well, the possession is happening over at Epic. Now then Epic might join in with the electronic health exchange. And so they could hook themselves up to the national medical record system that the government is creating called the eHealth exchange. And now anybody else across the country who's part of the eHealth exchange, if the doctor gives them permission, they can tap in to the data that's sitting in Epic. Um, but it's not only that. Let's just say you're at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and um, and your records are at Cleveland Clinic. I can't remember if Cleveland has Cerner or Epic, but let's just say it has Epic just for the fun of it here. So you're far away and both, you know, and your records are far away in an Epic system over here and there, and you want them. Well, Epic has this, program called um, Care Care Everywhere, I think. And so the whole staff of the clinic that you're at can tap into the information from the clinic that you were at. And one of the ways that you can figure out as a patient exactly how broad the access is to your data sometimes is just by calling up the clinic and asking to see what happened at your last appointment. And you might have the clerk, the clerk, read over all the doctor's notes, the diagnoses and everything to you because they have the access. And I have... And thumb drives. You know, and, well, that, yes. But, um, but I have talked to um, workers at clinics of big systems who, who have... Uh, there was one worker who said, you know, you have no idea how far away we have to go to make sure that our colleagues can't see what we went to the doctor for. Wow. Wow. And so this is, this has been perpetrated on us by Congress and by the U S department of health and human services during the Clinton administration under secretary Donna Shalala, who is now a Senator, I believe from the state of Florida, maybe. Uh... And, um, it was her idea in her recommendations for privacy 
that even though privacy was an age old right, that it was now time to make it available for useful and public purposes, publicly useful purposes or something like that. And that's how they took away all the consent rights, the legal consent rights, the legal, you know, before a doctor, before HIPAA, a doctor wouldn't share your information because they were afraid of getting sued. Mm-hmm. Now, you, now there's no private right of action for you to even sue them. That's, that was taken away by HIPAA. So all your consent rights and all your legal rights were taken away by HIPAA. And, and so all the sharing is happening without your consent. I guess the, one of the biggest fears I have is with Medicare for all and, and single payer and essentially a government system like NHS in England, and they have their own issues now. 329 million Americans and their, all their health data is going into a database and you now have the world's most hunted database. In my research for this, and I, and I hope people understand that when, when I started researching this, a lot of these questions came up as just a complete, I had no idea. It's scary when I see what's going on that, that CMS, which runs Medicare, they have access to personal health information through contractors. CMS has to audit their provider payments or the GAO would have kittens, I would suspect. And correct me if I'm wrong in any of this. So the doc enters the CPT code, the billing codes into the EHRs. They input the patient's reasons for the visit, the diagnosis, treatment. And as I understand it, it's, the, it's usually an, uh, a registered nurse, and you're a registered nurse, from an accountable care organization will go to the physician office to look at the system auditing Medicare patient records. And the real kicker is, and you've, you've mentioned this, they can do this without patient authorization. How am I doing so far? Pretty good. It just is reminding me that I said 2.2 million. And those are the, those are like the practitioners and the facilities and the 1. million business associates. But that 2.2 million number does not include the government agencies that can have access. So you're reminding me to add that in there. Wow. So I can understand why CMS would want the, the ability to go in without patient authorization. There's a, there's a logistical issue, whether it's technical or in this case, you've got RNs going in uh, to see a PCP and they've got 2,500 patients. I mean, that agent isn't going to call all those people to ask permission, and that's not going to happen realistically, too. And my response would be, dream on, Bullwinkle, no way. So I understand from their view why they wanted this, and, and they needed the blanket authority to do their audits. And so I asked myself, how on earth they got this approval? And I saw they went to the OCR, and this is in the Federal Register. And... And on, in the proposed rule, they talk about this. And then it's in the rule itself. And, I, and I, I saw OCR and I'm thinking, what is that? Well, it turns out it's the Office of Civil Rights. And I thought, gosh, is that in the Supreme Court? Is that the, the World Health Organization? No, it's in the Department of Health and Human Services. So figuratively speaking, George goes over to Paul across the hall and says, hey, we have this logistics problem. Can you give us approval to do this? And going back to what Admiral Rogers said, there's no FISA court at all. I mean, it's harder for the government to get emails and phone calls. So, I mean, what went through your mind when you saw all this go down? You weren't surprised. Well, no, because there's all this. I mean, 
health data, I think because of third party payment, you know, because the government, the government has, you know, what are we up to now? We're up to almost 60 million people on Medicare and uh, Medicaid is an even more expensive program than Medicare. And then you got all the veterans, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, they got Obamacare. And so as far as they're concerned, you know, they would be saying they'd be pay, uh, protecting taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And as it is, they do millions of dollars of improper payments every year. And the reason that that happens is because we have government programs. And so it's just like this vicious circle. You create government programs, which create such an atmosphere and ability for fraud. And then you say, we've got to find these people. So we're going to get all the data about everyone. And, and then you make the patients even more vulnerable about having all of their data. And it doesn't stop the improper payments. So, you know, but I think about your listeners and I think, oh, they probably put up their hands and they've thought, well, there's, there's no hope, there's no help, there's no nothing. But I can tell you that, um, you know, there are different administrations with different directors of the OCR. And um, right now there's a director of the OCR who's willing to be kind of controversial on things um, like uh, religious freedom and um, all, um, all, all, he's went up against some of the Obamacare regulations. He stripped them down and, uh, and so, you know, we have asked the director of OCR to bring back the right of consent mm. because here's the interesting thing. The law passed in 1996 called HIPAA, and there's no privacy in that word. It's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, H-I-P-A-A. -A. Um, and out of that act was this requirement that either Congress write a law for privacy or HHS, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, was required to write a rule for privacy. And when they wrote that, and nothing, nothing in the law required them to strip Americans of consent rights and to take away privacy. It didn't say to protect privacy and protect consent, but it also didn't require it to be taken away. And as I said, it was Secretary Donna Shalala who decided that privacy must go so that the data was available for all sorts of other purposes. And, um, and so HHS today and the Office for Civil Rights today could, if they wanted to, simply strip out the permissiveness of HIPAA and put back in a simple requirement for written informed voluntary patient consent for sharing of medical record information. They could do it. They huh. could. You know, and you know, so I don't know if they will, but we are pressing them and we have well. pressed on the <laughs> fact that nobody or, or so many people who refuse to sign the HIPAA form, that's a campaign of ours, who refuse to sign the HIPAA form, so many people who refuse to sign that or the acknowledgement of um, uh, the notice of, sorry, the statement, the acknowledgement statement that they have read, received, or understood the notice of privacy practices. One of those two uh, people refuse to sign. And when they do, sometimes hospitals or clinics say, well, we aren't going to see you because you're required by law to sign that. But that's not, not true. true. Yeah. And so we have talked to the Office for Civil Rights about this and that people are actually losing access to care for exercising their lawful rights. And in one of the last proposed, well, not a proposed regulation, but a request for information, OCR asked clinics and hospitals to respond to questions about these forms and whether people 
are denied access to care. So I think OCR might do something, but we're all waiting to see what that might be. Uh -huh. Well, you know, in my show with Dr. Molly Rutherford a few shows ago, I mentioned that President Trump ought to give her a call to get real, the real story about addiction and recovery. And he likes going to the front lines because the story is likely to change as it, as it moves up the chain of command. So if President Trump called you on the phone, <laughs> what would you tell him knowing that his time is short and read my book is probably not what he wants to hear? <laughs> Send him a copy after the call. So what would you tell him, knowing that we only have a few minutes too, so I really want to get this, what would you tell him? I would tell him that medical privacy and consent rights need to be restored because outside access to medical records is being used to control the entire healthcare system and to bring us a American-style version of socialized medicine where the health plans centralize the dollars, the data, and the decisions. And so it'll look private, but it'll be socialized medicine, and that he needs to take action to make sure that we actually have freedom coming back to America in our healthcare system. Ah, can he sign an executive order telling that fella at OCR to do what you suggested? Yep, he could. That's his, it's his department, right? I mean, here, here's the funny thing. This is a small world down here in Panama. And if he called me, I'd say first call Twyla and then sit down with Robert O'Brien, which is his national security advisor. And to tell you how small of a world it is, his brother Patrick, Robert's brother Patrick, lived here and is a friend of mine. And he has a legal practice in Northern California. Hi, Patrick. So where there's a will, there's a relative. And I will pass this along and who knows, you know, in, in, in the right world, but quite literally there is, there is something that he can do in a matter of minutes that can make a difference. And so considering that the potential dark uh, cloud of fear, uncertainty and doubt is, is hanging over us. And I'm not afraid of making the conclusion that this is a clear and present danger to us and it's avoidable. It's entirely avoidable. And I think, uh, and you probably know where I'd go with that, and that's direct primary care as one example that prevents patient-sensitive information from getting released in the wild. So has Hunter gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, Twyla? <laughs> what do you think? Nope. Uh, as I have said, we are um, creating escape hatches from the current system. The Wedge of Health Freedom at jointhewedge.com is one of our escape hatches um, so you can get a doctor who really works for you and doesn't share information and is at an affordable price. Um, but the other thing that we have done is we got the Trump administration to do an executive order on October 3rd and section 11 of that Medicare executive order will uh, requires the departments to disconnect Medicare enrollment from social security benefits. The Clintons tied them together in 1993 and said, if you don't enroll in Medicare, you will not get access to your social security benefits. This is not lawful. This is not in law anywhere. It was an executive instruction unilateral from the Clintons and it's been followed for 26 years. And so the executive order says these two things must be disconnected. And that of course will start um, the road towards um, private coverage for a lifetime for seniors and for all the young people today who really should not expect to have Medicare in their future because 
according to the trustees, it's probably going to be insolvent in six years, 2026. That might be extended a little bit. They might even pour more money into it. But with how many seniors are depending yeah. on it, there's going to be rationing. It's an unsafe system to depend upon. You really do need to have a real indemnity, medical indemnity policy that pays you, however much money that is, $100,000, whatever it is, that's how it used to work, pays you, and then you pay your doctor in your hospital. And that will, <laughs> that will just make everything affordable. That'll make everything better. That'll make you the... Simple. Well, yeah, and patient care will be centered around you. It won't be about what the outsiders say can and cannot be done. Right. Twyla Braze, president of Citizens Council for Health Freedom at cchfreedom.org. Thanks so much for joining me. And, and your comments on how the data travels from the primary care doctor on up into the system. But that was really helpful because I didn't know what that was. And I'm sure the listeners didn't know how that worked. And so thank you so much for, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Well, it's an honor. And to my listeners, thank you too. We're going to have this episode up on our YouTube channel. So your comments are appreciated. And what's your own uh, privacy perception? Have a discussion there. The appropriate links that things we discussed, videos in the book, everything that, that Twyla mentioned, we'll have that on the website at winhff.com. That's all for now. And please join me each week as we take a deeper dive into aspects of healthcare you won't find anywhere else. And there you are. Thanks for listening to the Winning Healthcare Food Fight Show. Hit the subscribe button to hear more expert thinking on getting better care without the mess.